Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 2, Chapter 4 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 2, read by Lindsay Summers. Part 2, Chapter 4, The Sea I led the way out the door, and we marched west. The sun was getting high in the sky now, and the mud from the storm was quickly drying in the bright day. After setting a brisk pace, I slowed for a bit and put my arm around Deirdre, pulling her close to whisper in her ear, Everything happens for a reason, I said, and repeated, Everything happens for a reason. Deirdre had not spoken since leaving the woods that morning. With one hand she held my arm, and with the other hand she rubbed tears out of her eyes. It's my fault. It's all my fault, she said. I clutched her tightly, but didn't stop walking. No, my dearest, nothing is your fault. If I weren't blind we wouldn't be on this journey. And did you make yourself blind? No. God did. It's God's will. Everything is. God gives us no choice. The man had nothing left. He had come to the end of his rope. And didn't we, in a way, bring him back to his kin? What else might have happened to him if we hadn't brought him this far? He might have been killed by thieves or wolves or his enemies who took his land. It's impossible to say. The path went uphill. Liam's fields were behind us, and Bracken bit at our feet. I was still barefoot from losing my shoes in the stream. To be barefoot in summer is common, and I paid it no mind. My feet were tough. Where are we? Deirdre asked. Aren't we going back? We didn't come this way. We're headed for the sea, as we intended. Why? Because we started, and we'll finish. It's in God's plan. Fergic was behind us, and he caught up as we reached the top of the hill. We stopped. Smell the breeze, Deirdre said, for a moment forgetting her misery. I smell water and lavender. Yes, I gave her a hug. I peered down the hill, at the bottom of which was a lake and a settlement. I hear voices, Deirdre said. The lake village was bustling with activity. In the lake itself, men were building a crannog, hauling stones into the middle to build a rocky, man-made island. On the shore, craftsmen were carving a huge stone cross. Some women daubed a house with mud, while another stood at a loom outside and others spun wool on drop spindles. It was a great contrast to the strangely idle, empty place we had just left. Voices rose, women singing and children playing. I felt happy and at peace. I felt I could stay here, if it weren't that we had to keep to the journey. It's a busy, God-fearing place, I said to Deirdre, and I recounted all that I saw. Even Fergic smiled for the first time since we had left the woods. We went down the hill and were greeted by a man who oversaw the carving of a cross. He was a slight man 
with blonde hair and a shaven face. His eyebrows were dark and heavy, over deep brown eyes. I am Aidan, the priest, he said. I wondered if Fergic would tell him of our unlucky adventure, but he was reticent. We were quickly surrounded by children, begging for tales, and one by one the women rose from their chores to greet us also. We're from the south of Connacht, on our way to Iona, to see my brother who is a master scribe there, and to visit the miraculous well we have heard of, I told them. You're close to the sea now. If you spend the night here, you'll be at the coast tomorrow afternoon, Aidan said. Of course, you are welcome to stay longer. Yes, stay, a young woman spoke up from the crowd. She was looking intently at Fergic, who looked away. It's a fine cross, he said, and went over to inspect it more closely. It was about seven feet tall of grey-green stone. The carvings depicted lambs, grapevines, and scenes from the life of Christ, the raising of Lazarus, and the Last Supper. Aidan gave us a tour of its carvings, and explained he had just become the priest, and all were eager to have a cross for their masses. Two men were digging a hole for it close by, and after a brief pause to welcome us, they finished it. No one wanted to delay its mounting. Fergic helped them haul stout beams for tipping it up. A rope was tied to the circle that connected the cross's arms. Aidan walked out to test the rope's length. We need more, he said. Some of the men wore belts that they had untied and fixed to the rope, but it still needed to be longer. I handed Aidan my rope. He smiled and tied our rope to the line, and it was now long enough. Some of the men joined together to pull, while others with Fergic piled the beams behind the cross to keep it up, and the rest guided the base into the hole. It rose up, inch by tentative inch, but it was bound to rise by the collective will of all who watched. It had no choice but to rise, and I felt our prayers instilling the cross with its own will. With a sudden thud, the base slid into the hole fast, and the last moment of its rising, beyond their effort, released into its secure footing, like a soul suddenly slipping away from death into paradise. The children cheered, and the men slapped each other on their backs. The women hugged each other. Aidan gathered them round and offered a prayer. I squeezed Deirdre's hand. Aidan's voice reminded me of Dermot, and I longed to tell my husband of everything that had happened. The ropes were untied and returned to their owners. Your coming here was lucky, Aidan said as he gave me back the rope. It was mid-afternoon and dinner was laid out. We ate our fill of lamb and spring onions and mash. The children, who had been silenced for a while by their mothers, began again to ask for stories. Fergic told them about Tara. He spoke well and I was grateful he had thought of something to tell them. The women continued their chores, while the men took Fergic out to the Cranach and showed him all about it. I went to the loom where Eve, the girl who seemed to admire Fergic, was weaving. Deirdre ran her hand over the cloth. It's very fine, Deirdre said. The cloth was white, undyed linen. We have good flax along the lake, Eve replied. This began as a shirt for my baby brother, 
but he died this winter. So I continued to make it larger for my father, and then he died of the sweat. Now no one wants the shirt it will make, for it seems cursed. But I don't fear such chances. I will marry a man in this cloth some day, for I know the cloth carries no blame for chance misfortune. I ran my hand over the fine weave. Those are brave words, well spoken, I said. There must be some plan for my labour. I only need to find it. I pray over my weaving every night that it will be redeemed of its ill look. We helped her by beating the weft, and we talked more and more gaily as the time passed, a burden lifted off our shoulders. Is Fergic your son? Eve asked after a while. No, my cousin. He seems a fine, upright man. He is that. I paused. Fergic had still seemed a boy when we left a few days earlier. But now it seemed true that he was suddenly a man. The light was fading, and Fergic and the men returned and built a bonfire. After such an exciting day, a quiet calm descended over the croft. Everyone sat by the fire. There was a quiet murmur of voices, mingled with the fire's crackle. The children, huddled at their parents' feet, closed their eyes and drowsed. Suddenly, a loud voice shouted from the edge of the wood, and a man, naked and muddy, burst from the trees. He ran straight for the fire. I am Lu, hear my rebuke, he shouted, and he shouted other incoherent things. Three men jumped up and ran toward him. He got to the fire and pulled a burning branch out of it and waved it at his pursuers. I could see by the reaction of the crowd, anxious but exasperated, that this was not planned but yet something they had seen before. I turned to Aidan. He is partially mad, our friend Adam. Twice a year he goes berserk, ranting and singing and sleepless, thinking he is some pagan god. It lasts at most a fortnight, and then he is calm again. Started when he was a young man. For a long while we lived with it and accepted it. But last year he burned down his house. Adam swung the burning branch in the air, and a shower of sparks fell on his matted hair, which caught fire. He dropped the branch and sank to his knees. One of his pursuers grabbed a leather bag to smother the flames, closing it over his head. I tossed my rope to Aidan, and the men quickly tied his hands and feet. As soon as he was tied with my rope, his shouting stopped. His chest heaved with deep breaths. The bag was still over his head. He trembled slightly, and then he was very still. The crowd watched in silence. Hello? he asked meekly from within the bag. Aidan stepped up to him and pulled the bag off his head. Adam's face was no longer contorted with madness, but mild and peaceful. What am I doing here? he asked. You were mad again, Aidan said. He swallowed and looked around. So I was. God preserve me. It's gone now. I'm thirsty. Aidan put a cup of water to his lips. We'll leave you restrained a little longer. Aye, all right. As soon as I felt the rope, I felt the madness leave me. Aidan looked to me, and then looked over the crowd. 
This is a blessed cord, then, with power to heal. Aidan and some men, with Fergic, volunteered to stay with the tied-up Adam all night to make sure of his cure. Deirdre and I were invited to stay with Eve. We rose early the next morning and went outside just as Aidan was untying Adam. I approached them. Thank you, Adam said. Your rope has healed me. I took the rope and tied it round my waist. I think because it was used to raise the cross, I said. I looked at Fergic for reassurance, but he only looked away. We ate mash in high spirits and joined in the day's chores, deciding to stay for a few days at Aidan's invitation. Though Deirdre was unfamiliar with the house and grounds and could do less than at home, she was able to spin wool while Eve continued to weave. I made myself busy. I cleaned the house, chopped wood, and when Fergic and some of the men returned with fish from the lake, I rendered the oil for the lamps. Fergic gave all the fish he caught to Eve and made some needles for her from the fish bones. The third morning of this pleasant respite, I said over breakfast that it was time we continued our journey. Fergic nodded with resignation, and after eating, went to talk with Aidan. Eve cut the cloth from the loom and draped it over herself. The women admired it. Yes, I shall be handfasted in this gown, Eve said. She and all the women worked on it, and by midday the dress was finished. A simple, long-sleeved tunic. She girded it with a red leather belt, and the women decked her with flowers. Fergic and Aidan approached as we finished. Fergic took Eve by the hand and kissed her cheek. Eve shone in her gown, her blue eyes sparkling, flower petals falling all around her. Let us be joined, Fergic said. The women went and gathered everyone. They were handfasted by Aidan with a small length of cord cut from my rope. There had been no time to prepare a true feast, but a fine meal was scraped together and draughts of ale flowed through the sieve. Somehow it was generally known that the couple did not want to consummate the marriage until Fergic's return from the journey. Instead, the couple and the whole company sang and danced all the night through, and Fergic and Eve beamed as happily as ever any couple did. At dawn, after a short sleep, we rose, and the whole company walked with us part way around the lake, and Eve said goodbye to Fergic, where the path turned away to the west with a kiss. A little piece of cord was still wound around her hand when she waved goodbye. After we turned up the path, we didn't talk for a while. We followed the way that Aidan had instructed us as the fastest way to the sea. Then I asked, Will you stay there or bring your bride to our farm? I fear you will leave us and we will miss you very much. Yes, I think I will stay with her people. It's very pleasant and busy there. I like it very well. We came up a hill, and at the top I drew in my breath. There was the wide ocean, bronze as a shield, streaked in red below the setting sun. Fergic gave a shout. What is it? Deirdre asked. The sea is as endless as the sky, I said. The sun is sinking into it, sending out streams of bloody red. The vast ocean fills the horizon. We have come to the end of the world. Clustered at the edge of a low bluff 
were seven dark fishermen's houses. Not a sound arose from them. Slowly, we picked our way down to them. No one came out to greet us. We stood outside the first house and knocked, calling, Good day! No one answered. Fergic looked at me with a frown. Could they all be fishing? Or gone to some fair? Deirdre pressed my hand. Do you smell that? A strange and rank odour filled the air. It's probably their fish drying, I said. It smells worse than that, said Fergic. I turned away from Fergic and led Deirdre around to the yard in the centre of the houses. I stopped short and put my hand to my mouth, about to vomit. Five men lay dead in the yard, rotting and covered in blood. Fergit came up behind me, stopped. He tugged my arm. Let's go back, he said. I breathed through my fingers. We have to see if there are survivors. We might be of some help. It's clear none of these are living, he said. Dead men? Deirdre asked. Yes, I replied. Fergic was right. Their bones were sticking out of their leathery flesh. I hurried into the nearest house. The humid room had a musty odour from the half-eaten food. Four bowls of porridge on the table. A cup of milk next to a full jug turning thick. The cauldron of porridge still hung over the cold hearth in the centre of the room, its contents dried and hard. I walked around the room. A chest was tipped over and linen strewn on the floor. I rocked the chest back in place and started to stuff the linens back in. A small, hard object came into my hand. A wooden comb. A few long red hairs trailed out of it. The bodies in the yard were all men. Where were the women and children? Next to the chest was a crib, and a bulky sheet was stained in blood. I was afraid to pull back the sheet, afraid of what was under it. I took one of the clean sheets from the chest and draped it over the bloody bulk in the crib. There's no one here, Fergit called from outside. I went back out. Some battle has been waged here, he said. I didn't want to discuss why a king would raid fishermen's houses or why Aidan knew nothing of a battle. Let's go back, Fergic said, leading us out of the yard. I looked down at the ocean. I did not want to leave the ocean behind after coming so far. There are boats, I said. So? asked Fergic. We have been walking so far. Let us take a boat and go around the coast to the next place. He stared at me. It might be dangerous to go on the road if the brigands who were here are out. We can float to the next fishing croft, I said. It's too dark to go out on the sea. It's also too dark to go back. In the twilight, Fergic's face looked as hard as Dermot's. Fergic seemed much older than when we had left. Let us stay in one of the houses tonight if we can stand it, I said. We might as well sleep in beds and tomorrow we can see. Fergic rubbed his face and shrugged tiredly. It is a place of no good here, but I am tired and ready to sleep. Perhaps there is some food. 
We went into the house farthest from the yard. It too had old food and bowls on the table, but there was a wheel of cheese that was still good, and we ate. Deirdre and I huddled in a bed, and Fergic took one by the door. We didn't speak, and I tried to ignore the smells creeping inside. Deirdre shivered in my arms. The next morning, we rose early and finished the cheese. Fergic pressed his hands on the table, tired and exasperated. The only thing to do is go back. His voice was hoarse with exhaustion and frustration. I stared at the room, the half-eaten meal, another chest broken open, a torn apron on the floor. Not even the pounding ocean waves from below could fill the void of silent death. If we take one of the boats, we could go farther and find a place where people could help us get on our way. Going back means never getting to Iona, and we have come so far. My voice felt dry in my throat. I wanted to cry, but no tears came. When we have completed our journey, I will ask Dermot to give over to you some of the cattle, to start your new life with Eve. That isn't important, he said. I wrung my hands in my lap. We had to go on. I felt no choice about it. There was no convincing Fergic, but we had to go on. Can we at least walk down to the beach, so that I may see firsthand the vast ocean? Fergic heaved a sigh. All right. I took Deirdre's hand, and we found the path down to the beach, walking in the bluff's long shadow, until we stepped onto the white sand. Slowly we walked over the slipping, uneven surface, my arm tight around Deirdre. We walked toward the little boats, some coracles, and a curra. The dark body of a seal lay among them. A harpoon stuck out of it. Fergic pulled the harpoon out and studied it. I've never seen carvings like this, he said. The shaft was carved with something like letters, all straight lines at different angles. He rinsed it in the water and held it up. The ivory tip gleamed in the dawn. I gingerly stepped toward the water and put my bare foot into it. It was cold and prickly. The wet sand yielded underneath. Deirdre stepped in beside me. We stood in the water to our ankles. The ocean was dark, glinting with sharp-edged silver waves. This is what forever looks like. I said. An incoming wave turned to foam around our feet, pulling out again, pulling some of the sand out from under me. I swayed slightly. This was the tide. This was what people meant by it. I wanted to be on it, and forever meant never again to see my brother. Never again to have this chance. I started to cry. Shall we go? Fergic asked from the shore. I turned, but stayed where I was. Tears ran down my face. Please, please let me see my brother again. This one time. This is my only chance. We're almost there. Fergic put his hands on his hips and bent over. 
the patience sucked out of him as if he had been punched. All right, he cried, but I have no more to say. He turned over a coracle. Two oars were underneath. He slid it into the water and over to where we stood. Get in. I helped Deirdre in, and we sat in the small boat. Fergic got in and pushed the oars into the sand, moving them out with the tide. The waves swelled, and I felt the rocking in my body, bouncing forward and back. We were soon away from the shore. Fergic and I each took an oar and tried to guide the boat along the coast. This is mad. We'll land again at the first chance, Fergic said. I trembled in fear. He was right. We should land as soon as we could. Rowan was hard and my hands were soon raw, stung with the salt spray. Perhaps when we landed we could find sailors who knew what they were doing, who could take us the rest of the way. As the tide took us farther out, I became more frightened and prayed silently. God was with us. This was God's plan, I told myself. Deirdre was sitting between my feet. I looked down at her as we bumped in the water. Deirdre hadn't spoken most of the morning. Deirdre, will you give us a song? I gasped as I rowed. Deirdre's face was tense. Will we be on shore again soon? She asked. Yes, my love. Yes. Deirdre began to sing, her voice thin above the sound of the wind and waves. An island came into view. I see cattle, I said, behind you, Fergic. Fergic twisted around to look. There must be people then, he said. Relieved, I rowed harder. The tide pulled us toward the island. Suddenly the sun disappeared as a thick fog enveloped us. We could only see a few feet around us. We could hear cattle lowing and a bell being struck. What do we do? I asked. Just try to follow the bell, Fergic replied. What is it? Deirdre asked. Just some fog, love. It will rise again soon, and the tide will take us to shore. The sound of the bell seemed to move, first ahead, then behind us, nearer, then farther. Then it stopped, and the cattle moose also stopped. We started to shout greetings toward where we had seen the island, but there was no response. The waves spun the boat around, and the mist drew closer in our little cloud as we drifted. I knew we were beyond the island now. I closed my eyes. The water grew very still and barely lapped the side of the boat. I prayed the angels would guide the boat to shore. I thought I heard men singing and opened my eyes, expecting to see the shore and monks chanting psalms. But before I even opened my eyes, I was disturbed by the song. Its words were strange. It wasn't Scots, and I was fairly sure it wasn't Latin. I turned toward the singing, 
which was not coming from the land, but was close by on the opposite side of the boat and getting closer. Then I saw it. A ship larger than any fishing boat was bearing towards us, with a prow carved like the head of a serpent. A forest of oars extended out the sides, beating the waves. Shields glittered on the sides of the ship like shining scales. I thought I must be dreaming. Fergic was waving at the ship, and I wanted to grab him and keep him still to hide. But there was no hiding. The singing stopped and turned into shouting. Men in leather with long white hair and beards ran to the side of the ship. Fergic called to them and they called back, laughing. Fergic had my rope and he tossed an end of it to the men who pulled our little boat up beside the ship. The men were huge, giants. Surely I was dreaming. Two big men reached down and pulled Fergic onto the deck of the ship. Before Fergic could speak, they ran their swords through him. To be continued. If you enjoy Continuous Stream, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. For other ways to support the show, please see the show notes or visit www.continuousstream.com. Thanks for listening.